Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Many public radio listeners admire the work of Roman Mars, the producer and host of 99% Invisible. That podcast has been downloaded more than 500 million times. Call it the little podcast that could. Last week, Sirius XM acquired the 99% Invisible Company, which means Mars and his team will join Sirius as part of Stitcher and continue producing the popular show. Later this hour, I'll talk with Roman Mars about his recent book, the 99% Invisible City, and the power of design. First, we honor May as Asian Heritage Month with a little-known aspect of American history. Chinese people in Mississippi? We don't usually associate the two. A new documentary, however, tells the gripping story of Chinese immigrants in the Deep South through one family's history. Joining me now are Larissa Lam and Baldwin Chu, the filmmakers of Far East Deep South. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Baldwin, when did you first become interested in wanting to know more about your father's and grandfather's history? Well, I remember recall, I recall asking a long time ago when I was a kid, but then I kind of forgot about it. And it really wasn't until the birth of my daughter when I saw how my father would hold my daughter. And that would be the first time I'd ever seen in our family, immediate family, a a grandchild and grandfather relationship. And that's when I really started wondering, hmm, why didn't I ever have that relationship with my my grandfather? Why did I ne- never know him? And I think that really started prompting um, our desire to really try to find out where our family his- history and lineage came from. I always thought it strange before Baldwin and I got married, when I asked about his father's side of the family, he didn't know anything. And when we were finding, you know, guests for our guest list for our wedding. I said, do you want to invite anybody on your father's side? And he said, no, 
I, I don't have any relatives that I know of. <laughs> and so uh, I think hopefully that also sparked him thinking about uh, where, where that other side of the family was, because I know I always wondered. <laughs> sure. Well, when you traveled to Mississippi to find out more about your grandfather, Casey Lou, what was your father's initial reaction when you told him you wanted to film this experience? Uh, well, I think he, he thought we were filming just for a family home video. He had no idea we were trying to make a movie out of it. And we didn't know we were making a movie at the time. And we, we honestly thought we were just going to take a vacation. I, you know, grew up in Southern California, Baldwin grew up in Northern California. I literally thought we were going to go to Mississippi and find two Chinese men buried there, um, Baldwin's grandfather and great grandfather. And we'd call it a day, have a nice family vacation, come home. Um, we were really filming because, you know, at like any good family vacation, you just film all those family <laughs> moments, especially when you have a little daughter. And ha we had no idea until we started uncovering the history and visiting the museum, the Chinese museum in the middle of Mississippi, and all these amazing you know, discoveries started happening that we thought there was a, more of a story that needed to be told. Yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, the entire museum in Mississippi filled with Chinese memorabilia and archives from those who had lived there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was a treasure trove of history that most of us never get to learn about in our history books. And, you know, I really felt like, you know, we all learn about segregation and we all learn about the, the American South as we study American history growing up, but nowhere do we really learn about uh, the Chinese being impacted by segregation and the Chinese having a, a presence and contributions in the South. Well, it is such an ugly mark on American history about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and we will get to that, but all the more reason to bring to light the situation that you do in your film. What was it like seeing your father discover his father's Bible for the first time, Baldwin? Yeah, I... I don't think any of us was prepared for that. Um, it could have been any artifact. It could have been, it could have been a dictionary, you know. Um, but the fact that it was a Bible, I think, um, it held significant value to my father, especially you know being a man of faith. I think it resonated that hey, maybe there's an opportunity that that he would see his father at some point again. But at the same time, I think it was a very sad. It was, you know, he likes to call it mixed memories, right? Mixed, he's got mixed feelings. You know, he was, he was sad and elated uh, at the same time. Yes. Larissa, I read that you previously directed a short documentary, Finding Cleveland. How is that the basis for this documentary, Far East, Deep South? Well, Finding Cleveland was about our first trip to Cleveland, Mississippi, not Ohio. Everybody in Ohio always thinks it's about us. No, <laughs> there's a Cleveland, Mississippi, which is where the Chinese, um, the Mississippi Delta Chinese Heritage Museum is. And, and that story is actually now embedded, you know, in Far East, Deep South. And really, you know, all we had was that first trip and all those discoveries. And we, we made a 14 minute short film about five years ago, and um, it had a great response 
response. Um, and as a result of us kind of touring the country back in those days when we can actually watch movies together in, in venues in a, in a large, in a room, we had so many people ask us questions and we had questions about the family and more about the history that we decided to dive deeper. And, you know, here we are uh, a few years later and we have Far East Deep South kind of exploring more of those, that history, uh, both family and also um, broadly the history of the American South and the Chinese contributions to it. You, you kind of like to call Far East Deep South like a prequel and the sequel to Finding Cleveland, along with Finding Cleveland retold <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> hey, isn't that how Star Wars started? <laughs> yes, that's we, true. That's a very good comparison. We, we packed the entire trilogy in one movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't have John Williams, but I have to compliment you on the music. It's yes. fabulous. Not only the original music, which I saw you credit to the composers, but that um, blues guitar when you're driving. Who chose that? Me, I, I my background is in music. Um, I'm also a music composer and um, songwriter. You know, music artist. In fact, my song "This Road" is at uh, is at the end credits, and and Baldwin's a rapper, and his song is featured in our Chinatown scene. scene. Chinatown. American-born Chinese, not from overseas, and I'm not Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino, Thai, or Korean. People get us confused at times because they think we're all the same, but we're not. But I had very much a hands-on experience with the music. We did not hire a music supervisor because I pretty much took those reins. And uh, you mentioned John Williams, and our composer Nathan Wong has actually worked with John Williams in the past, as well as a, a whole array of, of composers such as Hans Zimmer. And he, in his own right, um, is a fabulous composer um, who has two Emmy Awards awards and uh, recently scored uh, the big international hit Detective Chinatown 3 um, in addition to so many other movies. Um, so we're really, really grateful that he agreed to, to do our film and contribute his talents. Well, it is one fantastic aspect of the film. Far too few people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Will you describe it? Yeah, well, basically, in 1882, there was a law enacted, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, that basically um, said that Chinese could not come to the country as laborers. They could not come to the country unless they were exempted um, as merchants, uh, diplomats, scholars, or tourists. And they basically uh, also uh, did not allow Chinese to become citizens. Um, so it was, in effect, a law that was uh, that came out of the uh, a lot of the workers post railroad transcontinental railroad completion saying we don't want Chinese workers taking our jobs so this is our way to prevent them to come coming in it was also a way to try to get the ones that were here to leave uh, with all the anti-Chinese sentiment which eventually led to anti-Asian in general sentiment um, the hope of the Chinese Exclusion Act was that not only would you restrict the immigration of Chinese coming into the country, but the ones that were currently here would feel so much pressure and that they would go back home. 
go back to China um, as opposed to staying home here. And it's the only law that has been passed by Congress that was race based um, in terms of targeting at a group. You know, most of the laws, even though there's a lot of similar rancor, you know, in current times, it's it's by nationality, by country of origin. But this one was it didn't matter if you were born in Australia or born in Africa, if as long as you were Chinese eth ethnically, you were not allowed to become a citizen, you were not allowed to come to the country. So really, it's, it's similar to what African Americans had before the Civil War, except you weren't owned. Yeah, there. Well, yes. I mean, there, there's there's certainly um, you know oppression takes a lot of different forms. Discrimination takes a lot of forms for sure. And Baldwin had no idea that the Chinese Exclusion Act actually impacted, impacted his family directly until we went on this journey with this documentary. I think that was one of the surprising revelations. We thought we were going to be just exploring the history of um, the Chinese in the South. And lo and behold, we find ourselves at the National Archives uncovering um, all this history. And unfortunately, the reality is that uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act did exactly what it was supposed to do. It, it worked, unfortunately. It, it prevented uh, Chinese from coming in, and a lot of the Chinese that were here in this country uh, went back to China. Um, they, they couldn't find wives here because there were other subsequent laws um, that prevented women from coming over. So, of course, if you can't raise a family here, um, the whole point of the, the Chinese Exclusion Act was so that you don't increase your population here in, in the United States by raising a family. So that would, for, for in order to raise a family, you'd have to go back to China and start a family there. And of course, hopefully you don't come back. And in, in majority of the cases, they did not. And, and as a result, as you see in the film, um, we find out that Baldwin's family had been separated for generations, um, largely due to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Correct. Was your grandfather not allowed to reconnect with his wife and child in China? He was able to go back and forth to visit his family in China. And his intention was to eventually petition and get some sort of waiver or some sort of um, allowance to bring his wife and child over. And he would use the status of a merchant as opposed to a laborer to justify that um, his wife and his child could eventually come over. Unfortunately, he passed away um, too soon to be able to do that. And that was also the way my great-grandfather was able to get my grandfather and my great-grandmother, does that make sense? Yeah. To come to the country. It's like there's a large family yeah. tree in our film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, it spanned multiple generations. So not only did my great-grandfather have to go to China, get a wife, have a kid, and petition to come back. My grandfather had to do the same thing as well. And they were both born here. Well, there's spoiler a spoiler alert. right there. Uh, <laughs> one of them was born here. One of them here, was born here, and by, the other one was not. By derivative birthright citizenship, um, his grandfather was an American citizen because his great-grandfather was uh, an American, was born here. Um, and sadly, if Baldwin's, fa Baldwin's father technically should have been a, a entitled to American citizenship, but because at that time, it was uh, the lineage went to the, the father's side of the family because his because Baldwin's grandfather passed away before Baldwin's dad could come into the country. Follow us here. I know this is all this like back <laughs> and forth. Like imagine a map. Um, his father didn't have um, his 
Baldwin's grandfather was no longer alive to be able to prove the citizenship for his father. So even from a gender, you know, standpoint, there was obviously a lot of favoritism to the the male side of the family and the patriarchal lineage that is is now changed um, in our in recognition in our laws today. Mm. There was a lot of commonality between the black and Chinese communities living in the South during the late 19th and early to mid 20th century. How did they relate to one another? Well, they clearly had um, similar laws impacting both of their freedoms, uh, such as the citizenship, but also with segregated laws, Jim Crow, um, you know, the segregated schools, um, the capability to um, to purchase homes in or even just live in, you know, white areas, neighborhoods, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and as, you know, Baldwin kind of mentioned or alluded to, I mean, that was the thing that was most striking to me was that cemeteries were segregated, you know, even in death, racism um, reared its ugly head. Um, And I think, you know, as you mentioned with the Chinese Collusion Act, you know, that was another force that most people weren't aware of that was in effect, you know, impacting these Chinese families at the time. Jim Crow laws, made quite clear the distinctions between who could use what facilities or patronize stores, theaters, white-only versus colored-only signs. Where did Chinese Americans fall into those categories? That's a great question. And basically, we were stuck between both black and white. Right. And I think also, you know, depending on the time in, in history, I mean, you know, a lot of the, the court cases, uh, there's a famous case called Lum versus uh, Rice, which actually challenged the separate but equal statute of, of segregated schools. And um, they lost, the Chinese family lost trying to petition to go into to white schools um, because they were also deemed to be in the same category as the Black community. And so, um, you know, a lot of those there was no privileges, I should say, you know, the, the, they were not afforded um, the same privileges of the white community. Um, and, and many times they were categorized, you know, with the black community because there was no category for the Chinese. And in, in some case, in the state of Mississippi, there was a period where they couldn't even go to either black or white schools. They actually had to create a Chinese school that churches helped uh, the, the families and the leaders create mission schools just so the children could go to school in a one room schoolhouse where they had one teacher teaching grades one through 12. In your exploration of this story of the family history, what surprised you the most learning about the segregation and persecution faced by Chinese Americans? I think one of the things that surprised us was actually the silver lining in a sense. as much as this is a dark period and, and, and obviously the South had to go through very dark periods prior to this, right? Slavery, one of the most horrific, you know, stains in, in world history. And then having segregation come after as, as another form of oppression, yet the, the black community and the Chinese community living together um, because they were forcibly placed there, um, provided an opportunity for them to build community. Um, I mean, we actually discovered this photo that's that's not in our film of uh, a gentleman named Hosey Collins that we only recently um, found out more information about him, but um, Baldwin's family had this photo of him and we always heard, you know- Who's this African-American gentleman, you know? Uh, 
we have this photo and photos are not cheap back then, right? You, you only took photos of people of significance in your life. And they held this photo of this black gentleman. And we asked, who is he? And we found out recently that he was a farm owner, uh, just a mile or two down the street, down the road. And he and my grandfather would partner with each other, um, sometimes at the store and then sometimes at the farm. And they would do these partnerships with each other. And um, that they helped uh, sustain each other. And and I think it was also remarkable to me to kind of put into perspective where we are today. I mean, there's still a lot of issues racially, you know, in our country, as we can see in the news, as we can experience um, every day. But at the same time, you know, we take for granted walking through the front door of a store and and hearing a lot of the 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 black citizens and the Chinese citizens talking about like we could go to a Chinese store, walk through the front door, be treated with respect, you know, not in the same way we could do if we went to a white establishment where, you know, we were were hated and we were, you know, insulted. And so I think both the Chinese and, and black communities benefited from from having, you know, that that safe haven in a sense of of the, the Chinese grocery stores. Yes, this was one of the more moving aspects of the story was the closeness that developed between the black and Chinese American communities. Um, particularly Blacks feeling respected in Chinese stores and, and friendships that, that developed. The Chinese Americans in your film didn't make Blacks feel inferior. Is there a foundation here, do you think, to build upon now? Yeah, I definitely believe that, you know, if, if history could show itself today, if people could learn and understand that even during the darkest moments of our American history, that we were able to find commonality, we were able to find relationships, we were able to endure suffering together with the hope of building a better future, I think we would treat each other differently today. Um, I think a lot of people need to understand and recognize that the history of our past is very different than what's going on today. People are are comparing today's relationships with what happened might have in the past, but they're not the same, such as uh, we hear stories of how there's racial tensions today between newer immigrants and the Black community. And if only those communities would understand what happened 100, 150 years ago and how the early Asian community with the early Black community found ways to unite, found ways to live together, found ways to understand how to um, have relationships together, I think we would treat each other differently today. Ultimately, did making this film enable your father to open up more about his childhood as well as his family history? Yeah, well, certainly um, he did throughout the making of the film. Um, at the beginning of our journey, he was quite reserved. And when you hear and see his testimonial in the film, it's actually because I was not in the room. Yeah, I, I was able to unlock more of that. I'm the, I'm the, the magic ingredient, she's right? The, she's the favorite one. <laughs> not all, Larissa, not all daughters-in-law can say that. He, really, he likes me more than Baldwin. <laughs> and if you ask him, he kind of gives a little smile. <laughs> no. yeah. Of course he loves Baldwin. Um, but, you know, I think when Baldwin asks, it, it, 
he just kind of shuts off a little bit, you know, and again, I, you know, being parents ourselves now, I, I think I understand. I think you always see your, your, your children as kids, you know, whereas he met me as an adult. So I think he respects me as an adult, <laughs> <laughs> treats you like a child, Baldwin. That's um, and for, for him, I really felt it was therapeutic for him to share a lot of what he shared. And I was surprised. Uh, I think that was the one thing I feared the most was, you know, he was being so vulnerable and we know men of his generation, you know, are very uh, reticent to share. Uh, I think some of this, these darker corners of their emotional mind and um, for him growing up fatherless, I think it was it was profound. Um, it, it had a profound effect on him that I, I don't think anybody knew until we took this journey to Mississippi and reconciled the past with, you know, where he is now. And I think he's, you know, he's definitely moving forward and he's much more open. Uh, you know, he's still not an open book, but he's got a few more pages open. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on bringing this fascinating story and important history to light. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you, thank you so, so much. much. We really appreciate being here with you. And how old is your little girl now? She is seven and a half. Actually, she says I'm seven and three quarters. Okay. Seven, go seven going on 17. Oh, <laughs> very precocious. Well, it's so darling to see her in the film. Yes, and she's a sponge for history now. She is just absorbing all the biographies and history. And, and that's what we hope is that this film is a catalyst for others to want to learn about their family history and learn about the history that we were never taught in school. Director and writer Larissa Lamb and producer Baldwin Chu. Their new documentary, Far East, Deep South, premieres tomorrow on the World Channel part of the series America Reframed. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, I'll talk with Roman Mars about the recent book he wrote based on his podcast, 99% Invisible. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Many public radio listeners are familiar with Roman Mars, creator and host of the podcast 99% Invisible. The podcast has had 400 million plus downloads. Now, there's a book called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. The book was co-written by podcast producer Kurt Kolstad 
with the host, Roman Mars. He's with us now via Zoom. Roman, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real joy to be here. 99% Invisible looks at urban design and architecture in a way that isn't technical. It's wonderfully accessible and easy to understand. And I'm not alone when I tell you your stories are often from an endearingly quirky perspective. <laughs> yeah. When did you first develop interests in the subjects of architecture and urban design? Well, I've been a public radio reporter for about 20 years. And, you know, the subject material really came to me when I was... Um, working at WBEZ in Chicago, I took this, they have this architecture boat tour where you go on the river, the Chicago river, you go on a, a big boat and a docent tells you stories about the buildings and the way they told the stories um, made me realize that you could probably get away with this on the radio. You could probably tell interesting stories about buildings you couldn't see and, and get away with it. And that's when it really clicked in me that this was a show that could be done. But I've always had an interest in just the hidden stories behind everything, whether it's, you know, science and nature or human-built things as, as well. Well, that is the key to the book, the podcasts, window into your mind. <laughs> Chapter one is titled Inconspicuous. What are just a few of the examples of hidden design in this section? Well, the inconspicuous section is about things that are probably so small and everyday and mundane that you fail to notice them. So, you know, the first chapter is about this uh, spray painted graffiti that's official graffiti that's on the ground that is put there because if people are excavating or, or doing things underneath the street um it's a it's a little guide to what are the tubes and, and channels and, and <laughs> lines underneath it and it was you know this this sort of official graffiti was necessitated um, by a huge explosion that happened in 1976 in los angeles when somebody inadvertently cut through a, a petroleum line and since then, it was codified into a system. Over time, it's been sort of refined. And so if you see those spray painted markings on, on corners and, and on streets, if you see it it's and it's orange, it's it's a telecommunications line. If you see it and it's red, it's, a, it's an electrical line. And that's one of the things I've always been fascinated by. So I kind of always knew that, that that would be the first chapter of the book. There's also things called Knox boxes, which are these little safes that if you look, it's around eye level of, you know, commercial buildings, you'll see these tiny little boxes that have a you know key to open them. And that usually has a key to the, um, to the building itself. And so uh, those are there so that emergency personnel, they have a master skeleton key that can open up a lot of those boxes and they can break into the to the building without you know having to actually break down the door they can use a key to get into it and so um, those are other things that, that i kind of love those are the inconspicuous style of urban design that i'm interested in you're right that the knox box has gone the way of kleenex where what was once a brand name is now a generic reference and i love this acronym dirt yeah, <laughs> right. Would you would you unpack the dirt, Roman? 
Yeah, I, I will. I have to, I have to like actually check the, the term again. Cause it's, it's, it was a funny one to me. It was the damage information reporting tool. It is the, it is the way that you report. If you actually manage to cut through one of those lines, <laughs> uh, if you're excavating in the street or you're doing it in private property. This sort of information is exactly what makes your reporting and your storytelling so ideal for public radio listeners. But how much research on your part do these subjects take? I mean, the book is like a culmination of 10 years of the podcast research. And then in addition to that, the co-author, Kirk Holstead, um, he's been a design writer and urban design writer for a really long time. And so um, I don't even know. I can't even count how many uh, interviews are represented. And, uh, you know, all the people we've worked with on the show. It is a sort of mammoth undertaking. Uh, the bibliography is uh, extensive. If you ever want to do a deep dive on any one of these subjects, it is one of the most annotated and resourced and referenced books that I've ever encountered. Please tell us about what you call cellular biology. <laughs> so the chapter on cellular biology has to do with cell phone towers and the camouflage of cell phone towers. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is actually kind of cool that I didn't know until we were working on the book is that actually cell towers are named after the fact that the coverage area of a, of a transmitter, if you look at it from above, it looks like the cells on a Petri dish. And that's why, they call them, <laughs> that's, why they, that's why they call them cell towers. And so it covers a little cell area. And one of the things we were interested in is as cell towers were, you know, becoming ubiquitous objects, they, there was a need, a push from the public to hide them, you know, to make them not look, um, you know, the, the metal industrial things that they are and sometimes turn them into um, things that look like trees. And so most of the section is about the camouflage of those uh, towers and and turning them into little pine trees and <laughs> turning them into palm trees <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and ways to look out for those. And one of the things that's, that's funny about them is they, they look, you know, they don't really look like trees, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're pretty, they're not so, they're not so good at camouflaging themselves, but the more branches they have to blend in a little bit more, you know, the more expensive they are, the heavier they are. And so therefore, um, you know, it's, it's a real expense to, to hide them, but maybe it's just that I, you know, I don't notice the really well camouflaged ones. <laughs> so that's why I think that the, that the ones that are uh, not camouflaged are, are stand out. Yeah. What's the story of Lovelocks? So Lovelocks started as a tradition um, where there was a um, there's a tragic story of you know someone declaring their love and going off to to war and and then finding another sweetheart when he when he came back and so what the tradition started was that people would etch their initials inside of a padlock and and put it on on a bridge. And there are bridges all over Europe in particular that are just laden with love locks and so much so that it, it actually upsets the structural integrity of the bridge itself. And so they have to clip them off and they have to find other avenues like they'll put up little um, like signs beside the, the bridge and make it so that they, they have little grates so that people can put their love locks there. It's a tradition that, that a lot of people love, but a lot of municipalities do not love. <laughs> 
obviously. <laughs> are there really love locks along the Great Wall of China? Yeah, yeah, there are. They put up little chains in their love locks right there, too, yeah. Your stories cover so many cities. I mean, going from the Great Wall of China to Seattle, Canberra, Australia, Toronto, you mentioned Chicago, and then smaller cities, Paris, <laughs> truly globetrotting with these various references. Yeah. Roman, have you traveled to all of the places you mentioned? I have not traveled to all the places that I've mentioned. In fact, I, I have not traveled all that much in my life. I mainly talk to people in these places uh, to get that because I just been a person who's worked so much of my life and I never had as much opportunity. And one of the things about the the city guide, I mean, one of the reasons why it is the way it is, is like, especially in this time period where we can't travel very much, the book is a travel guide to whatever city you're in for this, you know, for you to look deeply and closely at your neighborhood because you can't go to some of these far-flung places. But through looking at the manhole cover, like in your neighborhood, we can talk about the ones in Japan that are these beautiful exaltations and the wonders of municipal water systems. And, you know, you can you look at your city grid and we can talk to you about um, Barcelona and all the places, you know, the decisions they made to make these super blocks and divide them up. And so we use it as this travel guide to go sort of expand out by staying in your neighborhood and um, mm -hmm. that's what I that's the way I've kind of traveled myself Barcelona was an example you gave of a hot mess when it came <laughs> to design originally I know people flock there now it's obviously shaken off that reputation oh for sure but it just was not you know the the grids of the super blocks were just not made for a you know human scale and they began to figure out ways to correct it and to sort of change the traffic around it. And, and so the, you know, in the neighborhoods that were sort of previously kind of hemmed in, you know, they expanded them out and, and made them better. It's interesting that you mentioned grids. My husband and I are originally from Chicago. I know exactly the architectural boat ride that you took, <laughs> and it is inspiring. It's marvelous. Yeah. But when we moved down to Atlanta, I got lost so often, <laughs> and I yeah. was so frustrated because children in Chicago at a very young age learn directions. The lake is east. It never moves. That's east. <laughs> and then you know everything. And, and if you make a wrong turn, if you're driving, you go around the block. Well, down here, they don't have blocks. And, <laughs> oh, the, the, you know, the circuitous route. And, and then I learned, well, some of it was because of the topography and not wanting to cut down trees, that a grid was not imposed here. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, uh, Chicago had the bad luck of sort of being burned to the ground, and then they built up from there. And because of that, they really, like, focused on making the grid part of its usability. And, and so uh, it had that moment. Atlanta also burned to the ground. They did not take that same opportunity. 
and so but the also the flat topography of of chicago you're totally right you can have the whole thing laid out in grids you can know exactly i mean one of the things i when i moved to chicago i made these um flashcards for myself to teach myself what the address number was for each street you know so like a fullerton is at 2400 north you know and, yes <laughs> and it was like uh it's it's so regular and so perfect in so many ways that it was uh it's kind of a delight to be in that city to know like how much care went into it and and, and some other cities feel kind of haphazard in, in comparison yeah. of course now with apps and GPS, you know, all of this, I guess, is irrelevant. You just <laughs> ask your phone and it tells you. I know, but it's so nice to know where you are. I mean, that's the thing. Like, the lake did give you that. And, and I live in the Bay Area, so, like, I know that the I'm on the East Bay, so I know that the Bay, you know, is on the West. And, and I like to know what direction I'm pointing in. There's something about my biology that requires that kind of, kind of knowledge. And so, so yeah, it's it's good for me personally. The popular producer and host Roman Mars discussing his recent book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. We'll be back with more of that interview after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the radio host and author Roman Mars, whose popularity indicates he is anything but invisible. The 99% invisible city a field guide to the world of everyday design, is a recent book with examples he drew from his podcast, 99% Invisible. Here, Roman Mars tells us about vexillology. That is the study of flags, vexillology. It's something that I've been kind of obsessed with for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I must confess that as an Atlantan who grew up in Chicago, I thoroughly enjoyed this section. Will you share the stories about the flags? Yeah. So I didn't know cities had their own flags until I moved to Chicago. And you see the Chicago flag everywhere in Chicago. It is a, it's a white flag. It has two horizontal blue stripes and four six-pointed red stars across the middle. And it is on every municipal building. It is on the you know shoulders of the police officers. It is on the tattoos of the bike messengers. It is like, it is everywhere. And it's this real point of Chicago pride. And so after I left Chicago, I, I moved back to the Bay Area and I was looking up the, the San Francisco flag because I'd never seen it in the previous like eight years I'd lived in San Francisco, and uh, I found it to be a very bad flag. <laughs> like it wasn't good to look at. It you was, shamed. Them. I totally shamed them. It has it has a few like really cardinal rules of that it breaks in, in design. Like for one thing, it has the name of the city on it. So San Francisco across the bottom. It has kind of a, a crude drawing of a phoenix on it, and I just didn't like it. And my assertion was is that a flag that's poorly designed is a flag that's unused. And if you made a well-designed flag, it would become this, you know, center rallying point the same way that, 
the Chicago flag as this center rallying point for all kinds of Chicagoans. And so it was kind of a call to action for all the cities who haven't really thought about their flags to consider them. And and the thing was, is like, even though I was having a lot of fun with you know, making fun of ugly flags and, and stuff like that, the main point was I just wanted people to you know, to look at their flag and consider it and to, you know, bring it out and, and use it. And I think that good design is a way to get people to love their flag. But if they love their ugly flag, more power to them, you know, like let them let them have fun with it. <laughs> you actually inspired a grassroots effort. Ninety nine percent invisible inspired local efforts to change city flags. And you must talk about that little city with a P. <laughs> Pocatello, Idaho. So yes, so the at the end of this, so this all was, um, I, I did a few episodes about flags and I did this TED talk about flags and that's what really happened. So in 2015, I did this TED talk about flags. Um, it was seen you know, just over like 6 million times and it spurred all of these flag redesigns all over the country, about 200 is by, by our count. And one of them, the way I ended the talk was I showed what the North American Vexillological Association rated as the worst city flag in North America. It was the city flag of Pocatello, Idaho. It was kind of, um, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, it definitely was making fun of them. They took it with such good humor. They were so sweet about it. Um, it turns out that the flag itself is kind of was a sort of an afterthought. It was really a, you know, a design from the 90s that was a city branding campaign. They didn't have a flag. And so they put it on a flag and said, this is our flag. And so it really wasn't designed to be a flag. So it has like a trademark symbol on it. It has like a copyright symbol on it. It's not made to be a flag. But I, you know, I ended the talk with that and everyone laughed and had fun with it. And um a little bit later, the, the mayor of Pocatello <laughs> wrote me and said, I hear you don't like my flag. And, uh, and then invited me up and I went to the different like committee meetings as they were deciding what to, what to do. And they were just, they were the loveliest people. Like they, they just were like, and I met one of the real, uh, city leaders, one of the business leaders in the city. And they said, thank goodness we weren't the second worst flag in North America because <laughs> it, it wouldn't have been as fun. There wouldn't have been a thing we could do. And we just had this moment where we thought about the city and we tried to make a symbol that made the city better. And they did. They made a beautiful flag that everyone uh, there loves or a lot of people love. I don't know if everyone loves it. And it was just a good, you know, like ending to that story. What an impact 99% <laughs> Invisible has. And you even went skateboarding with Edmund Bacon, the great urbanist. He was, was he really 92 when he went skateboarding? He was. I mean, I didn't personally go skateboarding. We had a video of him uh, doing it. So one of the things that I love is I love when cities design a thing, but then the people decide what is actually they're going to use it for, you know, like because cities are always this conversation between the people who use it and, and the people who design it. And so Love Park was this place in uh, Philadelphia. It was a park that was not used very well. It had, it had all these sort of concrete slabs and modern forms. It was an extremely comfortable park for, you know, the, the, you know, a person who was looking for a place to lay down or rest. But the people who discovered it and did love it 
were skateboarders in the 1980s, in the 1980s and 90s. It became this mecca. It became this place that skateboarders all over the country would come to so they could skate the benches of Love Park. And they would get chased off by the cops. <laughs> they would get, you know, their boards taken away. It was this little war between the skateboarders and the city. And Edmund Bacon, to his credit, he designed it. He designed, he was the sort of master planner for a lot of Philadelphia. And he skateboarded and when he was in his 90s in support of the skateboarders. You know, like he wanted to show his support and show that you know, even though he did not design it for them, he was happy that they took the design and, and turned it into something that was functional and useful and fun. And, you know, it, was, it became the park it probably always should have been, but he could have never anticipated what a fantastic story. <laughs> and what an extraordinary man. I mean, he's sort of the go-to guy for a popular book on urban design of cities. Yeah, yeah. And he's the father of Kevin Bacon, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I have to tell you, I interviewed Kevin and his brother ahead of a concert they were playing. They were coming to Atlanta to play. And, you know, Kevin was kind of uncomfortable. You could just, you could hear him worrying about six degrees of separation <laughs> questions and asking about his wife. And I just said, you're Edmund Bacon's sons. <laughs> and he was so excited to talk about his father, as was his brother it was very special. Oh, that's a, that's adorable. I love that. <laughs> In the chapter on urbanism, you write that a captivating statement made in the built environment by the right activist or artist can be so compelling to the general public that the powers that be are forced to pay attention. Yeah. Would you explain that? Well, so a lot of the time, you know, a city is designed, it's kind of designed from the top down. And I, I think most of the time it's designed with the people in mind. I, I really do think that most city planners are trying to do their best, but they can't anticipate all the things that a city needs or a neighborhood needs. Those things have to be acted on by the people who are there. And one of the ways that I think cities in general all over the U.S., especially as the cities expanded, you know, to the West cities really preference cars and car movement. And so one of the things I see a lot is a lot of interventions and, and you know, guerrilla activism of taking back pieces of the street that have been dedicated to cars for a really long time. And so there's, these are often take the form of in San Francisco, they, we have this thing called parking day, which uh, somebody, you know, feeds the meter for the whole day. And then they, instead of parking a car in that spot, they put in a little tiny park. They put down some AstroTurf or some sod. They uh, maybe put up a mini golf course. <laughs> they they put up <laughs> some chairs, and they reclaim that space because you know using the you know the the systems of the city by you know reserving the meter or paying the meter, they have the right to. And so when that started happening here, it really caused city planners to think you know, or the, not really the planners so much as just the bureaucrats, you know, people who work the city to sort of think about how to use some of the parking space differently. And we noticed that there was a lot more um, sort of cafes had expanded out into the parking areas on the street. 
And especially during the time of uh, the pandemic and COVID, when we need more space to be together so that we can be apart and be outside and be safe. And so I've noticed that this this place, the, the, the roadway that has been sort of the the dominion of cars for about a hundred years. I mean, roads were not originally just for cars. They People walked across them, horses were on them, cars were on them, trolley lines were on them. They were a much more dynamic and chaotic place. But then cars came on the scene and became so ubiquitous that we kind of yielded everything to the car. But I, I see us kind of taking some stuff back and that's really led by a lot of this sort of these interventions and activism. And then the city adopts them and tries them out and experiments a little bit and reimagines the city in lots of different ways that, you know, they maybe not have done had somebody not done something to act on it. Mm. Same, same thing goes for bike lanes. Like a lot of the original bike lanes, they were just people painted a line, you know, <laughs> and they uh, and then and those lines got adopted. And so there's a lot of this, you know, I'm really fascinated by the conversation between people and, it, and their city and what they come to, you know, what kind of agreement they come to in the end. Oh, Roman Mars, as a radio and podcast storyteller, you provide eye-opening experiences for our minds and ears. Now we can read about them as well. Thank mm-hmm. you so very much for joining me. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the conversation. Radio host and producer Roman Mars. His recent book is The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Last week, SiriusXM acquired his company, 99% Invisible Incorporated. Mars and his team will join Sirius as part of Stitcher and continue producing the popular 99% Invisible show. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archive stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks to all of you who donated to WABE last week and to our ongoing sustaining members. It is thanks to you that this is member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.